you know, Rumi, he was already a well-trained mystic from his family background, from his spiritual training and education. He was also an expert in Islamic jurisprudence. Uh, one of the few, maybe the only thing he actually got paid for was in giving fetwas, you know. But his fetwas were always the kind that people were like, you want a merciful solution to your legal problem, you go to Rumi, you know. He would make it easy somehow because he believed that, uh, he knew that Allah is merciful and generous and, and uh, even there's a saying of the prophet Muhammad, make it easy, don't make it difficult. <laughs> um, yeah, Muhammad actually said, God bless him, damn anyone who makes this religion difficult for others. I think that could be a useful message in the world today. Um, so, when Rumi met Shams of Tabriz, this uh, traveling vagabond mystic, kind of like the, as Melchizedek was to Abraham, Shams was to Rumi. He was bringing a, 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 a new enlightenment, you might say. Um, and Shams, we don't know much about his past. He just appeared, and this relationship, this deep, beautiful friendship took place, and Rumi was just completely transformed in it. Even though he had already undergone many 40-day retreats, and he was, he was, by any standards, he was a well-groomed mystic. But Shams was something else altogether. And one of the first lessons that Shams taught to Rumi, so maybe Shams deserves credit for this, he said, there is in timelessness, there is the ancient one who dwells in a castle beyond all human needs, a castle that lacks nothing, and the ancient one is there. Um, and human beings uh, make the mistake of thinking, I'll chop off my head and I'll bring it as a sacrifice to the Ancient One. And the Ancient One just laughs. Because that one created all these heads. It doesn't need you to bring yours back. Sham says it's like bringing a cumin seed to Kirman, the source of all cumin seeds. <laughs> so what can you bring as a present to that ancient one? And Shams asked this of Rumi. And we don't know if Rumi answered or not, but the answer is, bring to that ancient one your true need. Because in the palace of needlessness, the only thing that's not there is need. So bring your need to that ancient one in order that that ancient one can have the pleasure of satisfying your need. And so Rumi says, and this is where I think he's original, he says this strange notion which could easily be misinterpreted, but he said, the universe is created for satisfying needs. The universe is created for satisfying needs. 
But there's a spiritual key we need here to understand this proposal. It would be foolish to bring our narcissistic needs. Rumi says, I think in one of the poems we'll be looking at, that uh, too many people are just like little mice with little nibbly needs. Create in yourself a noble, honorable need. Awaken true, the aspiration that is worthy of a human being. And then ask, ask for that, call for that. So in this sense, the universe is here to reveal the beauty, the generosity of this intelligent, loving, divine reality. And this should be, could be our relationship. And of course, for that relationship to be real, what is needed more than anything else is sincerity. But none of us have that completely. You might ask for that. Yeah. And humility, true humility. Um, so in the early days of Islam, before Sufism could even be distinguished from the currents that were happening there. The, the, the impulse uh, among many people, of the best, of the best of those early Muslims, was uh, to find sincerity and to find a direct relationship with the divine. In this sense, Sufism goes all the way back to the ninth century. Or is it the eighth century? Uh, but it goes all the way back. And later, you know what happens to religions. You see it everywhere. They become appropriated in various ways. They become dogmatic sometimes, et cetera, et cetera. There's a degeneration from the original message that is all too common. But it needs the, every religion needs the mystics to keep its reality alive because the mystics are in touch with the reality. And the whole religion is about finding the reality. The religion isn't even the means to the reality. Sometimes it can be, at its best, if you're lucky. Um, but it's that reality, the reality behind the religions that we're seeking. And your religion can serve that purpose when you understand your religion as a spiritual training system. And that's presuming, of course, that there are not distortions that you're picking up, distortions of human egoism, power, and privilege. And that really brings us back to the essence of his teaching. That's another way of understanding it, that really it's, it's so much about the transformation of the individual, 
And again, not for the sake of heavenly reward or avoidance of damnation, but in the sense of the realization of human potential. And this is embedded within the original teachings of Islam and the way the Quran expresses it. The Quran says, God in the Quran sometimes speaking in a kind of divine we. So when you hear this we, know it's just Allah, God. And Allah is not the brand name of a particular God. Allah is the name of the only God. So they, in the Quran it says, we have ennobled the children of Adam. Ennobled means, the word is, comes from karim, karamna. We have, uh, we have bestowed this honor generously upon humanity. And what has been bestowed is the capacity to realize within ourselves everything that's in existence qualitatively, everything in the universe is within us. It's the original holographic theory. And, but we have to live up to that honor. And in the process of human transformation, um, we're going to, I'm holding off on going through the poems I've, I've distributed, but we'll look at them more carefully this afternoon, but let me read the very first one, which I think captures something of this transformation. Mature yourself is the name. No mirror ever became iron again. No bread ever became wheat. No ripened grape ever became sour fruit. Mature yourself and be secure from a change for the worse. Become light. Yeah. So this is the essence of it. And Rumi is so uh, filled with the joy of what the human being can become. That this is the purpose of spiritual life. He would say that all the prophets came at different stages of humanity, to wake humanity up to this possibility. And the possibility, it seems, has been growing ever more abundant and complete. And if I may even refer to our beautiful prophet Isa, Jesus, son of Mary, when asked, why did you come? I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. So, and it's not, by the way, this is not, uh, I quibble a little bit with my friends like dear brother Matthew Fox, who talks about creation-centered spirituality. Okay, as a corrective, Christianity could use that. But, no, our spirituality is not merely creation-centered. We are in creation and beyond creation. You're in creation and eternity at the same time. And this abundant life is not about in some existential, just, you know, carpe diem. It's much more than that. It's about bringing heaven down to earth. You know, it's about bringing, uh, yes, the transcendent into the imminent. It's about realizing that we can live on all levels of our existence simultaneously. That we are physical beings, we are 
mental and emotional beings and we are beings with extraordinary spiritual capacities and subtle perceptions. And that we even have, it's as if, just as you have eyes to see the, uh, through the reflection of light, this material world, what if you have an eye that can actually glimpse unity? An eye that can actually perceive the oneness of reality and how everything is working together and everything is interrelated. What if you had such a sense? Maybe you do. The premise here, and again, now we're talking context again, the context of reality, that, and this is a very clear Islamic teaching, that God's mercy, meaning his benevolence, beneficence, overwhelms those aspects, very real aspects of reality that involve grief and suffering, pain, sorrow, all of that's real. We don't airbrush that away. We don't even expect to escape it. The purpose of spirituality is not to escape suffering from our point of view, but to contextualize it, to realize that it has a purpose if we are people of faith and, and we learn to be grateful for every experience. This transforms the experience and this gives us the benefit, the nourishment, that that experience can bring. And that's yeah, why even in this mixed up world with all of its problems and e evil and cruelty and violence, even in that, even in those conditions, amazing things are realized qualities are born that would only be born under those circumstances. So this is a soul factory of the divine that we've, we've all been brought into. Um, this is the heart of the mystery that even these things can be for the benefit of our souls. So I think what Rumi means in this, be secure for a change for the worse, I think he means be secure from ever going back to your immaturity, your unconsciousness, your unawareness. And this is another way in which, in the Sufi language, we don't use a language of enlightenment, we use a language of maturity. And it's not that we don't recognize a kind of enlightenment, but actually this is an interesting subject, and there's a chapter on it in my book, The Knowing Heart, and it deserves a comment. Once somebody brought me, wanted me to look at a video, and it was a video of their, their new spiritual master, and the followers of the master, who are all sort of really blissed out. And they showed me this video of the master and his blissful students. And after watching it, I said, well, what do you think? <laughs> the only thing that occurred to me is, well, which one of these people would you trust as your babysitter? <laughs> um, so this is a lead-in to the fact that in the spiritual life, we have two, shall we say, two lines of development and experience. And one 
we can call the line of enlightenment and the other the line of maturity. What's the relationship between these two? Because sometimes we mistake them and we might even be, in a sense, seduced by the lure of an incomplete enlightenment. So let me define the axis of enlightenment as being the axis of highly charged states of consciousness, highly energetically charged states of consciousness. So you can do this to people. You can, you know, if you have certain energy yourself, you can bring people into those states even before they're ready, even before they have the maturity to deal with it. You can bliss them out. Is that the purpose? You would be mistaken if you thought this was the purpose of spirituality. If you th is this what Jesus would do? I don't think so. So, and yet, it is real. The fact that uh, that that finer energy can be beneficial to us, can broaden our awareness, our, uh, increase our perception, uh, when the nervous system is also capable of holding it uh, and not being not blowing somebody's fuses. That's also an issue with uh, unbidden kundalini experiences. Some people have these experiences and then they need a lot of help afterwards to get to rebalance, to have the maturity. So in a comprehensive spirituality, you, there, there's a balance between the axis of maturity and the axis of enlightened states and experiences. And the maturity we define as being able to wield in your own, with your own individuality the attributes of the divine. In other words, we talk about God has 99 names. Each of those 99 names are also uh, inherent in humanness, in the human being. The human being has the same attributes that God has, essentially, which include things like generosity, compassion, mercy, justice, seeing, hearing, um, the, the subtle, the living, um, etc. So the human being who has awakened these attributes in herself or himself um, lives this abundant life that we're talking about. Because when, when it's needed, you can be gentle. And when it's needed, you can be fierce. Uh, when it's needed, you can be truthful. When it's needed, you can be just. When needed, you can be forgiving. When needed, you can be tender, and so forth. So the human being who lived through lived experience develops these attributes, and at the same time is growing in terms of being able to handle and embody subtler and stronger levels of energy. Uh, that's human development. That's true spiritual development. But it's not just an all-out rush to have some enlightenment experience, some intoxicated experience. In Rumi's tradition, we're very um, cautious, we're very uh, circumspect about intoxication. 
You know, we are the whirling dervishes. We are the, this is our tradition. And uh, the whirling ceremony is anything but a wild, uh, you know, adventure in ecstasy. Quite the contrary, we are taught. I mean, when ecstasy comes, you contain it. You don't show it. Showing it or losing, you know, when the dervishes are whirling in a ceremony, they have to be aware of so many things. They have to be rooted in an axis, a grounded axis, and stepping 360 degrees, saying Allah, which each step, and in tune with the sheikh who is holding the transmission of the lineage, and aware of the, the margins uh, of others whirling with their robes, flowing. You have only a limited amount of space in this choreography. So it's this beautiful choreography of divine dynamic meditation and worship all at once. Um, done as worship, done, the intention is always not to have some intoxicating experience for oneself, but to bring into the world those subtler energies through the right hand receiving, through the left hand bestowing, as an act of service, as a very heavy work, in fact, to bring something into the world, not to corkscrew us out of the world. Um, this is Rumi's tradition. It's a tradition in which uh, the foremost practice is spiritual courtesy. It's how you serve a cup of tea. It's how you restrain your own egoism. Uh, it's that constant awareness in each moment of what is appropriate in every relationship. It's called adab, the, or edep in Turkish, adab in other languages. And it means we translate it as spiritual courtesy but there's a courtesy for every relationship. There's a courtesy among the spiritual seekers, which is friendship and informality and gentleness and forgiveness. And there's a courtesy with your teachers. You give your full attention to your teachers with respect uh, and humility. It's said we owe debt to any, anyone who has taught us even a, dot of knowledge. And then there's also a courtesy before God. There's a beautiful story about Prophet Muhammad that is really so touching. Uh, <clears throat> so one day Muhammad was in his own, whatever, private tent or the homes at that time were just little rooms of, of adobe clay and apparently Prophet Muhammad was just kind of kind of sprawled out you know he's kind of hanging out if I may say so forgive me but uh, <laughs> then the angel Gabriel appears and says to Prophet Muhammad is this how you sit in front of your Lord you know he never sat that way again and he passed this on. This is part of the community. This is why you know, people are very aware, excuse me, of posture, of um, how we conduct ourselves with dignity, 
with awareness. And uh, yes, there are times for informality and you don't want to absolutize any advice or story. But there's a beautiful lesson in this. We are always in the presence of our Lord. Um, so this was then transmitted in all, uh, into a pedagogy, into all learning situations in the Islamic tradition. There's some kind of formalities that are observed in, the, in education, in Sufism as well, of course. Um, that has to do with really paying respect, giving full attention, and so forth. So this maturing of human qualities, this maturing of human character, is the highest achievement of spirituality. It is not attaining some blissful state of impersonal uh, and abstract enlightenment. You could say that the ripened fruit of creation is beautiful human character. And Enlightenment is to serve this. So this, this view, again, and I, as I like to say, I don't ever want to sound as if I'm promoting a religion, promoting Islam in, in contrast to anything else. Because I understand Islam with a small I, and I understand Muslim with a small I, as those who are in that state of surrender and peace, those who are in that primordial relationship with the divine, which is our true humanity, our, the true order of things, the natural order within which the human being develops stage by stage. Uh, to become more and more the embodiment of the divine attributes. We're still creating context, okay. Now with this context, so many things in Rumi's poetry which might be misunderstood, can, you're more likely to find uh, what he intended. And of course, we are so grateful to poetry itself, the language of the soul, because it's different from dogma, it's different from theology, uh, scholastic, scholasticism. Poetry can say many things at once. Not necessarily everything you think of is necessarily true. It's not as if a poem by Rumi is a cipher for anything you want to project on it. It's not that at all. And yet, in holy language, in true revelation, language becomes something transparent uh, that leads us through levels of meaning and allows for levels of meaning. And that's the beauty of this poetry, as I hope we'll continue to discover throughout the day as we get 
dig a little more into the actual poems I've selected for you, many of which are pretty idiosyncratic and examples of uh, unusual and nuanced perceptions. So let me say a word about the whirling ceremony, which is at the heart of our tradition. Rumi was encouraged to, to whirl by his mentor Shams of Tabriz. And we're learning, I'm, I'm constantly learning, how the vortex is the key to so much in science, in energetics, uh, in manifestation. And the whirling, the individual whirling, which is embodied in a ceremonially, is also tapping into something profound, energetically profound and beneficial to the human being. I think its true value has not yet been fully realized. Uh, I just recently learned a story, it was actually on, on the Oprah Winfrey channel and it was a woman who had a surfing accident. And they thought she wouldn't live, first of all. Then they thought if she lived, she would never walk again. While in the state of total immobility, she heard a poem of Rumi's, which goes something like, it's a quatrain, it says, I've been endlessly knocking at this door, asking to be let in when suddenly I realized I was already inside. Um, so somehow she was acquainted, she maybe saw a video of the whirling ceremony, and she said, I'm going to, I want to do that. I'm going to begin by doing it in my mind. I'm going to whirl in my imagination. And through that process, she eventually regained all of her faculties, all of her mobility, and she was like a quadriplegic, I believe. And all, it all came back to her and even got to the point where she began training as a Mevlevi dervish, a whirling dervish. And eventually that culminated in a ceremony in Konya where she was you know, received her initiation and uh, was able to whirl. And w this whirling is not so easy, not so simple, because, as I said, you need to be able to, number one, whirl upon the axis of your left foot with a 360-degree step, one, and we'll demonstrate it this afternoon with our chanting, Receiving in the right hand, bestowing the left hand as energy, we believe moves through the heart. Um, complete hyper-awareness in the sense that you have to be aware in perhaps seven different dimensions simultaneously to just to perform this. A few dimensions are physical, a few dimensions are spiritual. And it's to be done in a state of love in a state of communion as also not an individual, as part of a 
you might say an ensemble with a choreography. And it's supported by the most exquisite music. Uh, it was Mevlet, music of our order that gave birth to the classical musical tradition of the Ottoman world. So it's very super refined. We have over a hundred compositions, each one like a symphony, and each one in a different musical scale. Not, not every one in a different musical scale, but many musical scales, each with its own, <coughs> shall we say, characteristic sentiment, or emotional quality. And the ceremony itself tracks the spiritual journey up succeeding stages toward intimacy with God and then the return into embodiment, into having your ego, your selfhood cleansed and then being given your selfhood back in the final stages of the ceremony. So this was a way that we train people. And it's, uh, it is a physical feedback mechanism because as we know, you can sit in meditation and you can fake it. You can just be there still. Your mind is doing whatever it does. But when you're hurling, if you start to have that inner dialogue, <laughs> you know, it's an immediate feedback mechanism. And um, it's also a discipline of the body. And also there is an energetic going on that is uh, healthy, energizing, and also an act of service because it radiates in a micro-voltage way uh, a subtle, beautiful energy that even observers, guests, feel. So <clears throat> in the traditional Mevlevi lodge, and there were hundreds of them, over the, throughout the Ottoman world, from North Africa to Baghdad, from Mecca and Jerusalem to the Balkans, um, and now in Louisville, and <laughs> Kendall and London and Zurich and uh, Islamabad. But in the old days, uh, the ceremony was performed weekly, and guests were invited as uh, there was like a gallery it would be turning in a circular or octagonal space and there was a gallery usually of two levels so there were those who were performing the ceremony but just as important were those who were witnessing it and participating in it and then the energy goes out and everybody is because it's not an audience performer situation it is a service and I just last week, when I was talking with one of our Turkish friends who's deep into the tradition, and I asked him the question, I said, has anybody ever taught you about turning internally, uh, just in your imagination? And he said, well, when I would go to the Galata Mevlevi Sema, Hall, I would always get a flutter of, like my heart would flutter because this, people have been doing this turning there for centuries and centuries. And uh, he said, and we would begin the ceremony, but he said, I would remember years ago 
there were certain older people who would come to that ceremony and they would not even have their eyes open. They would sit there like this. And he said, and we who were turning, we knew that they were feeding us energy and we were feeding them energy. So this is a beautiful aspect of our, of our tradition. It's, it's literally beautiful because it is the synthesis, the integration of meditation, breath, um, dance, though we don't use that word, um, let's say choreography, um, of course, classical music. There are quite a few different instruments, the nay flute, various bowed instruments, and various percussion instruments, and some plucked instruments. So it's classical music, the poetry of the tradition being uh, composed in the compositions, and compositions that don't like repeat stanzas, but the ceremony is, let's say, close to an hour long, and the musical part of it, no, the melody never repeats. The words are, so there's a lot to learn, to know, memorize, to know one of these pieces. Like, like a symphony, really, and, but with words and part of it. So all of this was a training in aesthetics, in attention, in taste, in harmony and resonance. Um, gave people something to do <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah. We will take a break. Thank you for your patience. In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. Welcome back. So let's begin to look at some of these selections from Rumi's poetry. Um, <clears throat> I don't know on what basis I selected these. I think they're somehow they were very pithy. They're, they're sort of emblematic of <clears throat> important points to share with you today. So we've read the first one. Let's look at the second one. Your mysterious giving. O Lord, truly, your grace is not from our work, but from your mysterious giving. Save us from what our own hands might do. Lift the veil, but do not tear it. Save us from the ego. Its knife has reached our bones. Who but you will break these chains? Let us turn from ourselves to you, who are nearer to us than ourselves. Even this prayer is your gift to us. 
How else has a rose garden grown from these ashes? So this introduces us to the subject of ego, selfhood, very important and nuanced subject. Um, <clears throat> we don't say on this path to kill the self, we don't expect to lose the self. Instead, first of all, what do we mean by self or ego? We can think of ego as our I-ness, the state of our I-ness. Part of the work that we've done for almost 40 years now, well, yeah, it is 40 years, <clears throat> is to forge a language of spirituality in the English language, because English is, has not been a language of revelation, as far as I know, and it's a beautiful, incredibly rich language, but it's also a very a kind of a sloppy language for talking about spiritual realities. <clears throat> so we need to uh, create our own glossary, in a way. So talking about self and ego, Self, ego, ego means I in Latin, I'm sure you know. And every human being has an experience of I-ness. But what is the quality of your I-ness? For some, at one level, at the lowest, at a low level of human development, I-ness is like a prison of compulsions, of drives, most of them unconscious. Um, where the person has little perspective and one is totally identified with one's desires, inner conflicts, identified with the contents of our being. But you, we are not our, the contents. We are the container. We are the witness. We are the consciousness. And <clears throat> the more, in fact, we develop that aspect of ourselves that can witness, that can be conscious, that can be in presence, as we like to express it, the more we have a freedom from the contents, the more we can begin to um, be intentional about what is in our inner lives by using our attention intentionally. Um, choosing what we will give our attention to. Now, in our world, everything is competing for your attention. Politicians, marketing specialists, religions, whatever. It's a great competition for your attention. So what will we give our attention to? How beautiful it is if the human being can give our attention to God in prayer, in worship. And in our path, we call it remembrance of God. And remembrance is the foremost practice of Sufism and in fact of Islam. The Quran says, indeed, the remembrance of God is the greatest, period. It's the greatest. 
And what we mean by remembrance of God is the heart's perception that we are in this divine reality, that we live in an essentially spiritual reality, and that there is a unifying presence, a divine presence, which we've also described as a, as a uh, cosmic infinite intelligence and uh, nurturing compassion. It has many beautiful qualities. Boy, I'm getting, you know, between explaining the self or shedding some light on the self and shedding some light on what we mean by God, this is a big, big, big subject because God for us is not a person, not a uh, an separate entity, but a unified field of love and intelligence and we are as individualized aspects of that are sort of always feeding back into the divine. Our individual consciousness is feeding back into the divine. And the most beautiful thing we can do is to <clears throat> return constantly through our own hearts to that divine presence. It's really simple. Whenever you say, thank you, God, whenever you say, I trust in God. Camille, do we have a copy of the weird here? Uh, okay, in, in the Islamic tradition, not just the Sufi tradition, there are a number of phrases that are used for different situations in life. And I think one of the gifts that Islam gave to humanity is the uncompromising focus on the divine as the center of reality and the recognition that our greatest need is the need of the divine. And you don't need to be a Muslim, you don't need to convert to get this. You can be more Christian, more whatever, if you get this point and really live it and embrace it, then you will be Muslim in our sense, in the small M, not the capital M. So let Camille, um, yeah, um, read these beautiful phrases and you'll see how they apply to every situation in life. Now, what are we doing here? We're, we're, we're talking about how the individual self lives in this divine context, lives with this continual awareness that we depend on God, we trust in God, we know we're powerless without that divine uplift, without divine grace, and it doesn't free us of responsibility, but it does orient us to a reality of what is the true cause in existence. I have ready the following words. Okay? Facing all fears, there is no God but God. Facing all sorrows and sadness, may it be as God wills. Facing all benefits, praise be to God. And facing all abundance, Thanks be to God. And facing all astonishment, God is subtle beyond all knowing.
Facing all sins, I ask God's forgiveness. Facing all scarcities, Allah is enough for me. Facing all calamities, we belong to God and to him, her, we shall return. Facing every event of destiny, I trust in God. Facing all obedience and disobedience, there is no means or power in anyone except through God, who is the most high, the most great. So Rumi has three basic forms that he works in. In the early days, there were the quatrains and, and the ghazals. Ghazals is a lyric form in which sort of anything goes. It's not necessarily linear, uh, the linear unfolding of a theme, um, but it's a longer lyric poem with a meter typically and a rhyme. And the beauty of this, of Persian culture is that musicians are trained to recognize the meter of, of a poem and they immediately have both rhythmic and melodic elements they can fit to that meter and there are quite a few meters. <clears throat> and so a musician can just literally uh, show them one of these poems and they'll be able to accompany it with music spontaneously and, and uh, uh, fit into it. Then there's the, the quatrain form. These are the four liners. And in the, four, in the quatrains, you find a very, uh, Rumi sort of really revealing himself in unexpected ways. Um, and I don't claim to understand all of the quatrains we're going to read today because there's always an, sometimes an elusive element and things that he dares to say I feel like it really brings us very close to him to what his uh, what his inner life might have been like very personal Oh, and the third form is called the Mathnawi or Mesnavi, which is a six-volume uh, work of stories interwoven with sublime poems, prayers, vulgar jokes, and whatnot, and um, truly, you know, X-rated material, which Nicholson wrote in Latin, translated into Latin, so only young prep school boys could read it, I guess. <laughs> um, so there's the masterwork of the Mathnawi, six volumes. But to, this afternoon, we're going to finish with these quatrains. You know, people sometimes ask me, they say, well, how is Sufism different from Islam? Is it, is it a sect of Islam? Is it a different religion? And my answer is that it's a different level of consciousness. You know, uh, a Sufi can be doing exactly the same things that a conventional or orthodox Muslim is doing in their practice. Because the practices lend themselves very beautifully to spiritual training. But how it's understood, the consciousness that's brought to it, is something different. 
and the way we understand things is different. So this next quatrain is amazing. O oh, you who study the world, you're just a hired worker. And you who want paradise, you're far from the truth. And you who are happy with the two worlds, but unaware, because you have not experienced the happiness of his sorrow, you're simply excused. Now, as somebody once said to me, you know what the problem with Rumi's poems are? They're so beautiful, but then you show them to people and they don't understand. So if there isn't a lived experience, if there isn't some reference point of experience for these words, it'll just go by, and that's okay. Just keep this, keep this page, okay? And look at it 10 years from now, if you wish. Oh, you who study the world, you're just a hired worker, but you've got a PhD. Oh, you who want paradise, you're pious, you're very religious, you're far from the truth. Oh, you who are happy with the two worlds, and the two worlds are the unseen and the seen, the invisible world and this world. You're happy with the two worlds, or at least you think you are, but unaware, you haven't graduated to that state of presence, you haven't known that slightly higher consciousness that reconciles all the disparate parts of the human being, and, and something even deeper, because you have not experienced the happiness of his sorrow and I tried to find maybe a better way to translate this, but it's, it's close to the original. I, I can't do anything more with it without over-interpreting. Maybe Rumi is trying to tell us that there's a beautiful sorrow that the human being can experience. Maybe it's like you know, you listen to a beautiful symphony and in the symphony you, f you feel the pain of the world. You know, and you see its beauty, but you also see that it's suffering. And if you haven't known that, for now you're just simply excused. There's a great Sufi master, and his name is Ibn Abad of Randa. Randa's in Spain. And he had a beautiful teaching when he received a letter from one of his students. And the student was very depressed because after beginning 
the Sufi path and the spiritual practices, this student, this Sufi, new Sufi, uh, began to really see how unconscious, I'm guessing, how unconscious he is, how weak he is. He began to see his, all, his faults with a clarity he had never seen before. And so he wrote to his teacher. And his teacher wrote back this beautiful letter and, which said something like this. There are three kinds of people. There are those who say humbly, I could never go on the Sufi path. I am not worthy. I don't have the will. I don't have the aspiration. No, I just can't do it, so I'm not going to do it. And then there are those who say, oh yeah, I, I could do it if it's what I really wanted to do, but there are other things I'd rather do. And then there's a third kind of person who undertakes the work and then is blown away by seeing just how helpless we are, how unconscious we are, how weak we are. And this was the kind of person Ibn Abad of Randa was advising. And his response was, and this surprised me to hear it from him. He said, our way, and he called it the way of Muhammad, is a way of liberality and ease. He said, all you have to do is keep Allah as your companion in every state. Just strive to keep God as your companion in every state. So, you're feeling like a failure? Make God your companion in that failure. You're feeling like you're on top of the world? Make God as your companion in that exalted state, and so on. And this is really, I believe, advice to be trusted, because the divine is truly our companion. Rumi says elsewhere, uh, you thought you lost your friend. You thought you were alone know that on every step of your journey, beauty has always accompanied you. And elsewhere, Rumi says, uh, whatever aspiration, intention, the human being undertakes, the divine is at the window watching, supporting. This is the nature of the universal mercy, uh, which is the essential characteristic of reality, of the real. And someone came up to me and said, thank you, you've given me hope today. And that's always one of the most uh, important things for us to hear because that should be our state, that could be our state. 
It's not hope in an outcome. It has nothing to do with the outcome. I can tell you that Rumi says there is a state beyond sorrow and joy. That's where we need to be. There is literally a state beyond sorrow and joy. And it's not uh, just for some rare saintly individual. We can all know it. It may take some practice. It may take deep practice and commitment to a path and a lot of lived experience, a lot of sorrow and a lot of joy. And uh, before you know the truth of that. So that even in sorrow and loss and grief, there is a comfort. There is, because there is a state available to us that is beyond circumstances. We can know this. We are that. We are not the effect just of our circumstances. Circumstances change. So, and when they do change, you know, this, this too shall pass whether it's joy or sorrow. And there's a part of us that is just being. And being itself is enough. As in one of the phrases we read today, um, facing all scarcity, Allah is sufficient for me. Imagine trusting that. Whatever happens, God is sufficient for me. And the power of this language is such that just hearing this phrase and returning to it in times of need builds the soul, um, establishes that reality, which is the truth. Wouldn't God be sufficient for you? We have these experiences to refer to, and this is how the soul acquires a, a viability. Um, and the soul is growing, you know. The soul can be lost. You can sell your soul. Your soul can be numbed. Uh, as opposed to spirit. Spirit can't be damaged or harmed. And spirit is, we make a distinction between soul and spirit in our language. And it's maybe an uncommon distinction, but we believe it's true. That the soul is the, is the cumulative result of the relationship between self and divine spirit within us. The more there is a relationship between spirit as a, you might say, a non-dimensional point within our being, this would be ruh in Arabic, and pure spirit uh, related to selfness, your sense of I-ness, the more these two are in relationship continually and experientially and through lots of lived experience, the more soul you have, the more your soul uh, acquires a substance, if you will, the substance of experience and even memory. And 
I think this is something real. I think this is something that's going, being built in this cosmic existence in which we find ourselves. Um, and souls are enriched by experience. In that sense, nothing, no experience is wasted. And so, so many people are at a loss for understanding why are we here, what are we supposed to do, and especially a lot of young people who have grown up without some kind of uh, you know, uh, religious or spiritual formation. And um, really quite lost because no one asks these questions, no one answers them either. And um, so much knowledge has disappeared from the culture. But this is how the soul grows and is matured. Uh, the next one. How long will you watch us from a distance? We offer help, and even love is helpless before us. What is the soul, the tiniest infant in our cradle? What is the heart, one of our wandering beggars? Um, I mean, there's some poems that are so, they're, they're elusive, they're catching subtleties. I would guess, I'll tell you how I read this poem. He's talking about those like himself and Shams of Tabriz and their close companions who have stepped into that reality and they're living in that reality of continual divine mercy and beauty and there's such a kind of I like the word sovereignty. Uh, a double, two senses, important senses of the word sovereignty. One is individual sovereignty. An individual sovereignty, which means you're the master of your inner life. You take responsibility for your attention, for your intention, for your choices in life. And you're not just the effect of circumstances and influences that come your way. But that individual sovereignty is best attained in relationship to divine sovereignty, to knowing, as we learned from earlier readings today, that all power is with the divine, really. Our need for God is supreme. And so in human sovereignty, comes when we are not enslaved to anything in this world. We're not enslaved to the opinion of others or to circumstance. We are entirely the slave of God, if I may use that word. We trust that much. If you like the word servant, okay. It's gentler. Um, and so it's as if I think he's talking, he's, he's almost being a bit rude <laughs> but it's a certainty that this beautiful beneficence and divine generosity exists. And some folks are out there and they're just kind of like 
resisting, hemming and hawing, and defending their confusion and their lack of intention and whatever. And uh, this is common enough. And he says, we offer help. And even love is helpless before us. So, um, it's the supreme sovereignty. And what is the soul? The tiniest infant in our cradle. What is the heart? One of our wandering beggars. If your heart is out in the world, just wandering, looking, longing for some object of love, something to satisfy it, it's just a wandering beggar. And on the one hand, we're sympathetic, you know, compassionate, patient, pitying <laughs> for that state. Um, but the invitation is, it doesn't have to be this way. The heart has been, my heart has been a wandering beggar. Your heart has been a wandering beggar. Um, until we're with the beloved. It doesn't wander and beg anymore. I chose these, these selections for the reasons I already explained, but also because they're challenging. They show us sometimes that Rumi himself was not showing any mercy, not indulging himself, not indulging weaknesses, that there was a fierceness in his spiritual practice. I wanted to convey that fierceness so that we don't think the path of ecstasy is just something indulgent and uh, you know, uh, a kind of hedonistic spirituality. So he says, oh my heart, whenever like dust you let yourself be scattered. What is it to scatter the heart, you know? You abandon my poor soul to its longing. He's describing a relationship between soul and the heart. And the heart is not focused. It's not single-pointed. It's just like scattered like dust. We're not paying attention. We're not, you know, assuming our responsibility for our human faculties. We're scattered like dust. And the poor soul is just abandoned to its longing. The soul is still longing. But part of you is scattered. But now, you're in the fire. I will leave you there. Here's your last chance to become a master. <laughs> um, can we take lessons from this? Sometimes there's suffering uh, with our own state. There's a fire we have to go through. So I'm just going to, by the way, it's open session here, um, open season, we say. And uh, raise your hand if you want to comment on any of this as I go along. Otherwise, I'll just keep going. And um, Oh heart, stay with the pain that is a remedy. No groaning. Endure longing without complaint. 
Stamp your foot upon your own desires. Train the dog of ego. Let this be your sacrifice. There's a beautiful uh, song, Sufi song, that has the line, I searched for a remedy for my pain before I discovered my pain was my remedy. <laughs> you see how the divine reverses everything. You know? Causality is reversed. Uh, pain becomes joy and gratitude. Well, the superficial complaining and groaning is, you know, part of self-pity and it's a wastage of energy and it's not your real need so you shouldn't cater to it and one of the things that's learned in, in spiritual training is for instance uh, you know there's some training situations where they get you up early in the morning and for turning practice or whatever and it's freezing cold you know, and there's no heat in the room and you're going to do these spiritual practices and it's too early, you're barely awake. But you don't complain. You know, a dervish learns, a dervish is just another word for a spiritual seeker on this path, but it's, whereas to say you're a Sufi is kind of presumptuous. I'm a Sufi, nobody says that. Um, but to say you're a dervish is okay because when you, if you say you're a dervish, it simply means you've, you've yoked yourself to the wagon of servanthood. You've accepted the responsibility of spiritual work. But as a dervish, you know, like if, if it's 90 degrees and 90% humidity, the dervish doesn't go, oh, it's so hot. No, you better not. <laughs> Don't reveal your immaturity. Act like it's just a spring day in California. Okay? There's no complaining on this path. What reason do you have to complain? What good does that do to complain? So on the spiritual path, the dervish, the true spiritual seeker in any tradition, learns to transcend those things. Hot, cold, hunger, not hunger. And it reminds me of a beautiful story from the Jewish tradition. Um, there's, in a, there's a town in Poland called Helm. It's named, my name, Helminski. It's actually my name, last name. That town which was famous for training the best students spiritually at the yeshiva in Helm. And I love these examples. So one day, the boys were in the yeshiva studying Torah, and a bunch of uh, Polish noblemen came rousting about on their horses, drunk and making lots of noise, and they circled the yeshiva around making lots of noise. And not one of the students looked up. They kept studying. So they were learning something besides Torah. They were learning the mastery of attention. And then one of the rabbis uh, from this yeshiva, when he would go and wait for a bus 
at the bus stop and everybody's waiting for the bus and everybody's kind of looking up the road. Where's the bus? Is the bus coming yet? And the rabbi never looked up the road. And somebody commented to him and said, Rabbi, how come you never look up the road? He said, oh, will that make it come sooner? <laughs> so uh, these are examples, you know, of the inner training of the human being, the, the true spiritual training. This next one we have in a calligraphy in our home and it's always been dear to me and I want you to have it. It's like a bouquet we're offering you. Didn't I say, don't sit with sad companions? Don't sit with anyone but those whose hearts are glad. Since you're in the garden, don't go to thorns. Sit amidst the roses, jonquils, and jasmine. You've arrived. Be happy. You can spend a hundred days studying, but the soul won't enjoy your groaning. You may laugh at me and my story, but you, O oh scholar, have not become Majnun. Majnun was the great lover of Layla. And Majnun means mad, it means you're possessed by jinn. And he was so possessed by his love for Layla that he was mad in love for Layla. That's also a kind of madness that's acceptable to be so in love with God. Thinking that we can attain God through the mind, through mere information, through the accumulation. If you dwell with the unaware, you become cold. But if you dwell with the aware, you become a human. Make a sanctuary inside a furnace as true gold does, knowing that if you leave, you will become frozen. <laughs> Expect a lot of yourself. Be willing to live in the fire. Too often we think the whole purpose of life is to do everything we can to remain perpetually undisturbed. What an illusion, what a delusion. What a fruitless and unsuccessful or impossible strategy. Oh, this next one is so beautiful. So this is the divine speaking through Rumi. Don't flee from me for I am your buyer. Look into me, for I am the light of your eyes. Enter my work, for I am what will shine in your efforts. Do not tire of me, for I am your marketplace. I said at the beginning that remembrance of God is the foremost practice and that our need for the divine is our greatest need. And the simplest and best spiritual practice is to always and everywhere remember God. 
if we could do that while living our lives, because we, you know, we're good, multi we can multitask this. You can do what you've got to do and remember God. I'll prove it to you. I'll give you an example. Uh, we used a divine name today. It was who? Another divine name is Rahman, the all-compassionate. Now, you're going to follow me, and we're going to just repeat a few times who. And every time we repeat who aloud, we're also going to be, in a sense, thinking Rahman, the all-compassionate. Or if you want to just say compassion, that's okay, too. So let's see if we can do this. We begin. Who... This is a teaching, especially for our Sufi friends, just to show you something you may not have experienced before. That you can, in remembering one of the divine attributes, you can simultaneously hold another right there. Just as we can live our life, we can be doing the things we normally do. And in our hearts, it's just Allah, 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 Allah. And how that changes everything. Um, could Camille have the microphone? Would you read the next one to us, Camille? The heart is your student. For love is the only way we learn. Night has no choice but to grab the feet of daylight. It's as if I see your face everywhere I turn. It's as if love's radiant oil never stops searching for a lamp in which to burn. Brilliant. <laughs> okay. How did a human being express this? Do you get this? You see what he's doing? You see what he's saying? It's a complete reversal of causality. You're the lamp. You think you can search for the oil. No, the oil is searching for you. The oil is longing to burn in you. And you thought you were doing it. And Camille, would you read the last one for us? 
beyond the body, life, and soul is the dervish. Better than earth and sky is the dervish. God's purpose was not to create these worlds, but the purpose of these worlds is the dervish. Physics refers to this as the anthropic principle, that all the laws of the universe are set up in such a way that if there were just one iota was changed, the whole of existence would fall apart. It's as if uh, everything has been designed and led, uh, arrived at this omega point of self-aware consciousness. Um, that the human being is the ripened fruit on the tree of existence. And one of the first teachings we received on this path was this, that the fruit is the cause of the tree that the tree exists to produce the fruit. The tree of existence exists to produce the fruit of human character and consciousness. And this is our spiritual responsibility. Uh, this is why we practice, why we worship, why we serve. Uh, it's for the beauty of this. It's, it's, it's just for the natural longing to express that divine beauty that is rising up in us through no, in a way, through no, uh, not owing to us, not something we can even take credit for. But once it begins to rise and flow in us, this is the natural human state to want to serve, to want to express beauty, uh, to want to be more aware, to be uh, a reconciling factor in this world of conflicts, stress, and chaos, to be a coherent factor in this world of incoherence. So, there's more to Rumi than most people think. <laughs> Thank you all for coming and for your beautiful questions and clarifications and contributions and <clears throat> may your way be open. And thank Meditatio for hosting us and thank our beloved friends from Threshold Society for also holding this and holding all of us. Thank you. Salam. <laughs>